Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. And welcome to the Dr. Drew Podcast. Don't forget to support the people to support the pod so we can keep these things going. Click through on that hydrolyte banner at drdrew.com. Get 30% off. Use the code Dr. Drew 18 uh, Read the Opium series there. You will learn how we got into this mess. We and um, my partner, Michelle Poe, chronicle the entire thing. Uh, also, we put up the uh, birthday uh, podcast up as a List Life podcast at drdrew.com. You can check that out there. But um, let's get right to my guest, so it's much more important, which is my friend, Dr. Dan Siegel. The book is Aware, the Science and Practice of Presence. It's available on Amazon now. You can follow Dr. Siegel at drdansiegel.com, S-I-E-G-E-L. Twitter is at drdansiegel, Dr. Dan Siegel. Clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA School of Medicine, executive director of the Mindsight Institute. Other books available, The Whole Brain Child, 12 Revolutionary, 12, 12 revolutionary Strategies to Nurture Your Child's Developing Mind. No Drama Discipline, The Whole Brain Way to Calm the Chaos and Nurture Your Child's Developing Mind. Brainstorm, The Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain. I love that book. And then Mindsight, Transform Your Brain with New Science of Empathy. Uh, Developing Mind, How Relationships in the Brain Interact to Shape Who We Are. All topics that I hold near and dear to my heart. Welcome, Dr. Dan Siegel. Welcome back, I should say. Dan. Thank you, Dr. Drew. It's great to hear your voice and great to be here with you. And I miss you in person. Back to your book, The Developing Mind, about relationships. I would much better have the attunement of two bodies here in space, but I'll take the the prosodic voice on the distance. <laughs> yes, LA traffic has prevailed and uh, we will get together soon. You betcha. Yeah. So tell us about, um, I, I could talk to you as always about a million things, but let's start with the book, Aware. Yeah, well, the book came out of combining two scientific ideas into a very accessible practice called the Wheel of Awareness. And I did it first with my patients, and they started responding in a really positive way with a decrease in anxiety and mild to moderate depression was diminished. Um, People with trauma found it uh, really helpful to work with. And just existential issues of, you know, why are we here and finding meaning and connection in life, it helped with that, too. So I started teaching it to my students and you know therapists, and they started finding for their own personal lives it was helpful. They did it with their clients once they got to be familiar with it themselves. And then as a scientist, I decided to go out and do this in workshops, kind of like a preliminary assessment of it. But I did it with 10,000 people. Oh, my group. God. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, uh, and I recorded the results. And it was remarkable no matter where I was on the planet, no matter whether someone was running a meditation center or never meditated before in their life, people had, of course, unique experiences, but there were patterns when you do it with 10,000 people, you started to see. And that really led me to ask the question, why is the wheel of awareness so helpful? What is the mind really about? What is consciousness? And then that's what I wrote the book Aware about, is how to do the wheel of awareness, get the benefits in your life, and then you dive really deeply, step by step, with my daughter's drawings in the book, uh, you know, showing you visually what all this looks like, um, how you can understand what your mind is, and use that for uh, helping your life become better. I feel like your wheel of awareness was in mindsight too, was it not? It absolutely was. There was a story, uh, a number of people, but one of the main stories was Jonathan, a 16-year-old, and I talk about him again in uh, the book Aware because it was such a powerful experience of a young person who, you know, had a really serious cycling mood disorder. And, you know, his parents did not want him on medications for understandable medical concerns. And um, so I said, look, the standard treatment for this is medications. But if you want to try this wheel thing, I mean, this wheel this thing, is, yeah, <laughs> let's, let's, let's go that. for it. And, let's go over this Jonathan weird wheel thing. For it, and his parents were too, and it worked. And interestingly, after that, um, uh, David Mikovits at UCLA, with his own work they had done in Colorado and at Oxford University, he had started also a meditation program for people with cycling mood disorders. Hmm. Uh, and the results aren't in yet, but he's doing a controlled double blind study, you know, to see. If you can teach people to regulate their minds, even in the face of a diagnosed mood disorder like manic depressive illness, 
could that meditation practice, and meditation only means training the mind, could it actually stabilize a person's life and have their moods become less rocky and then allow them perhaps even to change the structure of their brains, which is what we're hoping to be able to prove. But we know that, that certain forms of meditation do improve the integrative growth of structures in the brain which are responsible for regulation. All that being said, we may be able to grow parts of the brain that are deficient that lead to psychiatric disorders, we actually may, may, may be able to use mind training practices um, that you hear about in the AWARE book to actually change the brain and change the course of people's lives. Now, I know you choose your words very carefully, and I heard you say two things that sort of jumped out at me. You said they can learn to regulate their mind, and you said regulate their brain or grow their brain. Yeah. And, and I was exactly. surprised to hear you say regulate the mind. Yeah. Because uh, that's a pretty inclusive notion, the mind. Uh, exactly. I, I mean, we're regulating the mood as a result of uh, – what do you mean by that? Because there's got to be a lot packed into that. There is. <laughs> you know me too well, Drew. <laughs> it's so good to talk to you. Um, yeah, you know, in medical school, you and I both know, you know, the, the equation that we get is from the time of Hippocrates – where, you know, Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, said, mind is simply what the brain does. Right. And medicine followed that for literally 2,500 years. And psychology, since the time of William James, was saying the same thing. 1890, the father of modern psychology, said the same thing, basically. So that's not new to say, oh, mind is the brain. That's actually old news. And so you're very um, astute to point out, you know, okay, I'm saying regulate the mind, and I truly mean that. So what, what's the difference? Well, the word mind actually doesn't have a fixed definition in the fields that work with it, like psychiatry, you know, my field, or psychology. Much, I'm like, much in, like we don't have a definition of mental health. Exactly. Well, this is the wild thing. So the journey I've been on for the last 25 years has been to say, let's wake up to this and say, is the mind just brain activity? And if so, why do we have the word mind? If it's just brain activity, let's just always substitute brain activity. So, Drew, if you and I were going for a walk and you said, Dan, you know, I want to tell you how I'm feeling. I'm having a rough time with some old friends of mine who are struggling with this and that. We got into an argument. I feel really bad. I should just say, oh, tell me more what's on your brain. Yeah, right. You know, but I don't. Well, I'll tell you I say what bothers me about, about what's left out. The two big elements that are left out when we do that is one is the bodily-based phenomenology of feelings and, and emotions, of which really are generative of those things, and the intersubjective, interpersonal aspects of the co-created experiences. And both are, to me, left out of that equation of mind-brain. Bingo. And that is beautifully said and exactly the point. So that, you know, let's say anyone, any human being communicating with another human being, whether you're friends or lovers or family members or, you know, a, a, a clinician like physicians with patients or clients, you know, all of that relational connection is a part of our mind. Yep. yep. And the fullness, just as you're beautifully pointing out, of the body, it's, you know, the mind is fully embodied. It's just not, it's not only in the head. It's embedded. It's embedded in a body, embedded in relationships, embedded in a social historical context. And that's yeah. why when people talk about offlating your brain to some digital system, I'm like, that's impossible. That's, that's yeah. something else. I don't know what that is, but that's not mind or not this thing we're talking about. Well, exactly. So, right. So you have a couple of things just to outline. Number one there's the feeling like right now I feel so connected to you and so, um, you know, uh, open and energized. So that's a subjective feeling. So the first thing to say is that the word mind refers to subjectivity. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a, if you want to put it inside, you have an inner felt sense of life. You pointed out something really important. There's intersubjectivity too. So there's this. I'm, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you, and I'm going to call that first subjective sort of a state of being. Yeah. Right. So and the feeling of being, it, you know, feeling you have of consciousness. being. Yeah, I wouldn't use the word consciousness yet, but I'd say the feeling of being. That would make sense yeah. to me. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So the feeling of being happens, um, and you say, "Well, how do you know you're having that?" And then you come to the second element of mind, which is consciousness. Yeah. You have this thing called consciousness, which includes the knowing, like 
I know I'm feeling open to being with Drew right now. And, and be fair, so that, and fair, the, the, the I'm is already another issue. Well, uh, exactly, uh, the I am. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so you have, you have this way where there's the knowing and the known, and basically that's where the wheel of awareness came from. It said, you know, uh, it's a long um, line of reasoning, but the two simple statements are, if consciousness is needed for change, if you're working with someone with addiction, or some someone with depression, or just teaching a kid in a classroom, or it's your child at home. Consciousness is needed for growth and change. That's that's statement number one. Statement number two is the second facet of mind, consciousness. It's something that you could actually think about how to use it to create health, and then you come to the issue that you said, well, do we have a definition of health? Well, in the field I'm in, we do offer a definition of both the mind and health called interpersonal neurobiology. And the bottom line of that is a process called integration, which is differentiating stuff, making them different, allowing them to be special. Like you and me, we can be different. And as you and I talk to each other, um, that's changing my grammar there. <laughs> you and I, you and me, yeah. you know, as we, as we realize you can be different from me, that's differentiating, but then we have compassionate, respectful communication that's linking when you balance this linkage and differentiation, you get something we're just going to call integration. And, you know, through about 25 years of trying to study this stuff, here's the simple statement. Health, including mental health, comes from integration. Now, you used to also include adaptability and that, those sorts of words, yeah. too. Yeah. So the outcome of integration is this faces flow. So it's flexible, F, adaptive, A. C is coherent, which means basically resilient and holding together over time. E is energized and S is stable. That, that's kind of the, if you look at the science of these um, systems that are self-organizing, that faces flow is what the mind is all about. Actually, a healthy mind creates integration. That's how it creates the adaptability you're referring to. I'm, I'm going to review it again just to make sure people heard what you said. It's flexible, yeah. flexibility, adaptability. Coherence, coherence, resilience, energizing, energy, what energy level, energized and stable. Yeah, energized and stable. So resilience is basically what the mathematical term coherence means. So you don't, it's just, a, it, that's parenthetic. You know, if you saw me in writing, it would be coherence, parentheses. Resilience. Um, it means resilience. Yeah, Otherwise, it would be like a farce, F-A-R-C. Right. the face. <laughs> we, need, we need the C. Come on now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Actually, that'd be a good one. No, but that'd be S. It'd be farce with an S. But anyway, you, you get the idea. Yeah. It's a face, faces flow. And what's cool about this is you could then say, here's the wild thing, Drew. You say, hey, what if you integrated consciousness? With what? Well... This is where the wheel comes in. I took my patients off the, the couch or, or seat. They stood up around this table I have in my office where it's a glass center and a wooden rim. And, you know, I said, what if you differentiated the knowing of consciousness? Like I say, hello. Right. Yeah. You, you have the knowing that I said hello and you have also have the hello. So let's put the knowing in the hub of this known one to call it a table of awareness. So a wheel. And on the rim of this wheel, you've got the hello, the sound of hello, or if you saw it in a book, the sight of the letters. So all the knowns we put on the rim, the hub is the knowing. And amazingly, you could take this metaphoric spoke, a single spoke, and systematically go like in the first quadrant of this rim, you'd have the first five senses from the outside world, right? Hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. You take a deep breath. You move the spoke over to the next quadrant, which includes the interior signals of the body you're referring to. You know, the feelings in your muscles and bones, all these sources of emotion is like the feeling in your intestines, your respiratory system, you know, your lungs, your heart. Then you take a deep breath. You move the spoke over to the third quadrant. And this is mental activities like thoughts and memories and, you know, more elaborated emotions than just bodily sensations. Um, you can have hopes, dreams, longings, desires, all that is mental activity. You explore those. You then, in an advanced step, actually bend the spoke around and put it right into the hub, which is like awesome. And people ex experience awareness of awareness. Then you move the spoke over to the fourth and final quadrant of the rim, the segment of the rim. And that's where you have our sense of relational connections, like 
to other people and to nature around you. And amazingly, when you do this, you're differentiating all the rim elements from each other and you're differentiating the rim from the hub. But then you're linking all this stuff together with a systematic movement of the spoke. And what has been absolutely amazing about it is as you integrate consciousness, like I do this every day, Drew, if I'm in a funky mood, when I do the wheel and then after the wheel, I feel a hundred times better. Hmm. And if I'm anxious, I do the wheel, I get really calm. And there's, I think, a reason for it we can talk about. But well, Describe what, more what you mean by do the wheel. I'm not sure well, I get what that would, looks like. Yeah. So let's, let's say, well, there's a couple of things. Number one, some teachers are using the wheel of awareness as simply as a drawing, as an idea that they'll tell even kindergarten kids. They'll say, look, this hub of this wheel is where you have the awareness and the rim is the things you can be aware of. So I'll give you an example of Billy that I talk about in the book. You know, a, a, a kindergarten teacher writes to me this amazing story. Billy is five. He's in one school. He beats up a kid on the yard, kicked out of the school, expelled, sent to the new school. He gets put into Miss Smith's class. Miss Smith teaches every kid in the class the wheel of awareness as a drawing. Just saying, you know, look, things you're aware of are on the rim, but you actually have knowing where you have the possibility to be, choose things on, in the hub. And the next day, this is when she writes me the email, Billy comes into her during recess. She, he says, Miss Smith, Miss Smith, you've got to give me a break. I'm on the yard. Joey took my blocks and I'm about to hit him. I am lost on my rim. I've got to get back to my hub. Hmm. So just an idea, even the wheel of awareness as an idea of differentiating the knowing from the known, it gives you this pause between impulse and action, which is the difference between hitting and deciding not to hit. Did Miss Smith consult an IRB in a human subject analysis? <laughs> <laughs> she could have. Well, you know, what she did was funny. She, months later, she wrote to me that Billy was doing beautifully in her class. You know, and it's kind of the basis of emotional intelligence, if you think about it. Well, it sounds like a, a version of CBT, right? It's almost like CBT and DBT together. Am I getting that wrong? You know, cognitive behavior therapy, let me think about that for a moment, certainly teaches you to think about your thoughts. That's true. It doesn't talk about integrating consciousness. But yeah, so you're thinking about thoughts. That's true. DBT does use mindful awareness in part of its processing. So it would overlap with that. Yeah. And it would, it has, what's interesting when you do the wheel, and this gets to adults as a practice, it actually by good fortune, overlaps with three pillars of mind training where here, here's where they are. You develop focused attention and you do this in the first two quadrants of the, you know, the rim where you're focusing on the sensations from the outside world and in the body. Then the second pillar is called open awareness where you learn to just basically sit in the hub and invite anything in. You do that on a third segment and when you're bending the spoke around. Then the third pillar of mind training that research shows helps in really exciting ways i'll tell you about in a moment you know that third pillar is is basically called um compassion training or loving kindness training i just call it training kind intention so you're training intention to be kind awareness to be open and attention to be focused so those are three fundamental uh, elements. I, I always of felt. Mind. Correct me on the one piece of this. So, is yeah. there, so now that we're drawing in overlap CBT DBT, we're also overlapping with mindfulness, or it is yeah. at its so, core, sort right. of mindful practice. Exactly. So some yeah. people would call it mindful awareness training, yeah. and that'd be fine. Other people would insist on saying that the three pillars are mind training that would overlap the first two with mindfulness. And other people would say, let's separate out compassion training. So it's a, it's a little bit of a debate in the field. Well, it's interesting because compassion training was the one that I separated out as I was going to ask you about because it always seemed to me – and I, I could be way off on this. But it always seemed to me that the best way to – again, I've got to choose my words carefully – grow compassion is to be, yeah. uh, to be the subject of focused, compassionate awareness by another human. Am I wrong on that? Well, now you're talking about everyday life, or you're talking about I'm mind about training. Therapeutically, I, I I know my own experience was you know when I was the focus of an attuned other, a deep focus, it expanded my compassion for other people. 
And I just thought that seems like how that develops is mom, you know, focusing on baby, whatever, that, that attuned exchange to me feels like where a lot of compassion is generated. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, my background in research is as an attachment researcher and, you know, we studied that exactly the kind of relationship you're talking about. And I would agree with you 100% that, you know, the origins developmentally of really caring about others, but even about caring for one's inner life too, starts with the parent-child relationship. Um, Some people are fortunate, you know, about a half to two thirds to have such a positive relationship. And depending on the studies, you you get about a third in this country. What's that? It's that many in this country. I'm shocked to hear. It actually is. Happy to know. I mean, this is now, you know, several decades ago and the new studies are showing it's a little bit lower. Yeah. But half to two thirds of people have what's called secure attachment. Yeah. That's crazy. But I guess those aren't the ones we hear about. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) They're making the noise. I know, uh, I know. Uh, but, so, yeah, but, but to be fair, to, to, again, to pile on, I'm going to say the same thing I said essentially again, which is, the, and that can be healed if you didn't get that with a certain kind of emotionally focused, attachment oriented kind of intervention by a professional, right? Yeah, so that's exactly right. So, psychotherapy is sometimes really needed if if in if non secure attachment was your history, especially, and you didn't learn the power of being a we you know, connected to another person, Mm -hmm. feeling felt by them. Mm -hmm. Now, you can say, well, then where does mind training come in? Um, And interestingly, they can be very supportive of each other. So that in therapy, I urge the people I work with as my patients, my clients, you know, to do these mind training practices for reasons I can tell you in just one moment. But if someone's only doing mind training, sometimes that works. But if they've had some pretty hard relational traumas, it's sometimes also good to add an, an excellent, uh, you know, relational-based uh, therapy in your, in your life. That sounds right to me. Uh, well, one of the most crucial components of addiction recovery is keeping people from using drugs and alcohol. And uh, it's difficult because the only test we have – for that, the only objective test we have or laboratory test we have is the urine toxicology. And facilities require regular testing, uh, but the tests are often not observed. And this has led to an epidemic of falsified samples, patients either using someone else's urine or widely available synthetic urine. The result is, of course, people are still using. Recently, I learned about a new solution that eliminates the possibility of faking tests virtually. It's the even an unobserved situation, it's called ToxProtect, a DNA-verified drug test and lab service that provides 100% sample authenticity. ToxProtect was created by Genotox Labs, and it can be used in place of any standard urine drug test. It starts with a simple one-time cheek swab to establish the patient's identity. Once submitted, each subsequent screening uses the DNA testing to verify the sample matches the patient, right? The DNA from the cheek has to match the DNA in the urine. Additionally, ToxProtect screens for synthetic urine and irregular values that would indicate dilution. In other words, it pretty much guarantees accountability. I'm so excited to see this. I'm excited to see this service being used, and I think it can significantly improve an addict's chances of successful recovery. I'm going to be talking more about Genotox Labs and ToxProtect on future shows. On future shows, thankfully, ToxProtect is being used by more and more facilities every day. Be sure to ask for it by name or wherever you or a loved one is receiving care. To get more information or share it with your facility, go to drdrew.com slash toxprotect. That's my website, drdrew.com slash T-O-X-P-R-O-T-E-C-T. Hey, check out Lady Gang Podcast on Podcast One. The Hollywood Girl Posse has tackled the biggest names and stories in Hollywood, and now they're taking over your TV. Check out the funniest ladies on the planet as Kelty, Becca, and Jack prepare for their upcoming premiering this Sunday, October 28th on E! Congrats, ladies. Check out Lady Gang Podcast every Tuesday and Thursday on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcast. If you or a loved one are suffering from foot or leg cramps, I mean, this is a painful problem. It is a common problem. The big thing is that it breaks people from sleep. They have disrupted sleep. That can have serious health problems associated with it. Or it prevents people from exercising who otherwise would. I'm behind Theraworks Relief all the way. You've heard me talking about Theraworks Relief. It's a non-greasy foam clinically proven to relieve muscle cramps fast. It reduces muscle soreness and recovery. And with daily use, Theraworks Relief can prevent muscle cramps before they start. This, of course, can allow you a full night's sleep. 
And it also can allow you to do the activities you love without pain and worrying, and, and people just avoid it because it's that painful. TheraWorks Relief only takes minutes to apply. It absorbs quickly, and it works. People love it. I recommend TheraWorks Relief to family, friends, patients, and uh, not only do the results speak for themselves, but now I have people handing their TheraWorks Relief to other people, and it's it's crazy. It's my choice for preventing and relieving muscle cramps. Make it yours, too. Get TheraWorks Relief in the pain relief aisle at Walmart, CVS, Rite Aid, and Walgreens. Or by talking to your pharmacist, they're as enthused as I am because you don't any longer have to use medication to relieve or prevent muscle cramps. Learn more at TheraWorksRelief.com. That is T-H-E-R-A-W-O-R-X, TheraWorksRelief, for your muscle cramps. Well, I love purple mattresses. As I said, we have one in our house, and uh, it's a room that we don't often use, but when we have guests over, they use it, and they rave about it, and then we get jealous, and we go walk at it just to just to partake of the the pleasure of a purple mattress. Yeah, that's it. I mean, if you spend time tossing and turning, stiff neck, back pain, forget it. Purple Mattress has got you covered. The founders of Purple are two brothers who've been developing cushion technology for over 30 years. It feels different than anything else you've ever experienced because it uses a brand new material that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. It's not the memory foam you're accustomed to. The Purple Mattress feels unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time, so it keeps everything supported while feeling quite comfortable. It's breathable, so it sleeps cool. It ends up giving you this kind of zero-gravity feeling. And, of course, they have 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. If you keep it, it's backed by a 10-year warranty. There are free shipping and returns. That's it. Get that. It comes to you. It's rolled up. You throw it on, and it is ready to go. You are going to love Purple, and right now, my listeners get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text DREW to the number 474747. The only way to get this free pillow is to text DREW to 474747. That is DREW to the number 474747. Yeah. yeah, and um, but here are the amazing things. Well, that, before you do the amazing uh, things, your words jump out at me, Dan. Well, um, client, you said client, not patient. I was well, that struck. You struck know, me. I only use patient, but because we may have some of our colleagues who are psychotherapists and who use the word client, I don't. Uh, there's a big war, you may know, in in the field that I'm in, mental health. You know, yeah. where if I only say patient. It gets psychologists, some psychologists, some social workers, some master's level folks really feeling left out. Huh. And so what I've learned over these years of being an educator is like, it's nothing of my, my, it's not hard for me to just say patients and clients. Huh. I, whatever. That's fascinating. You know. Okay. I, I, yeah. So that's why I do it. I don't call people clients that come to me, but right. when I'm speaking to other Being folks, inclusive. I get it. Yeah. I just want, I don't want anyone to feel left out. Okay. I apologize, know. but you're, I'm, I'm. I'm very attuned to you and your language, so I'm yeah. listening carefully. Well, I mean, listen, it's interesting. I mean, there are reasons to use both words. I have a, yeah, a, a I number of colleagues of mine who are psychologists, and they actually made a big pitch in this beautiful book on mindfulness and education to use the word patient because they felt client was too insulting. These are psychologists. Mm. So it goes all sorts of directions. I, so I just use both just to make sure people cool. don't feel like Okay, that. I interrupted you. Go ahead. Yeah, so here's what we know that is mind-boggling. First of all, three-pillar training is just a simple way to talk about mindful awareness training plus compassion training that some people put into mindfulness. So you just avoid, again, the people are like uh, not agreeing. If you use the word mind training, everyone's on board. So let's just call it mind training. And you asked how you do it. Um, what it is is you take a certain number of minutes – as regularly as you can. So you might say every day, but don't worry if you skip a day or two. It's kind of like brushing your teeth in a way because you don't say I'm going to brush my teeth once a, once a year. Right. No, you wouldn't like how your breath smells even to yourself. So you want to try to do this regularly. And it's a kind of form, just like if dental hygiene, I think it's a form of mental hygiene where you're really uh, keeping things fresh. And, and, and this is how it works. You take you're probably it's probably about a minimum of a dozen minutes a day perhaps you can do it shorter but then add other things in it's a long story with some researchers we're in a big discussion what's the minimum amount of time so that's a complicated story actually it's better to say start with two minutes a day so people get started than just say start with 20 minutes and then no one ever does anything right, so right. you want to invite people to do it it's just like exercise say 
oh, I can't exercise for 30 minutes, so I'm going to do nothing. No, walk for five minutes. Yeah. That's fine. So it's yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so the first thing is when you do three-pillar training, which the Wheel of Awareness fortunately just has all three built into one practice. Usually they're separate practices. But here's what the science shows. First of all, in terms of the brain, you're going to grow a more integrated brain. And, you know, I don't know how much detail of the Greek terms you want me to go into for brain parts, but, um, and I'm happy to go recite all the, them. Go all the way. You want to hear them? Yeah. Okay. So you're growing the corpus callosum that connects the differentiated left and right sides of the brain. So it's a very integrative structure. It gets bigger with three-pillar training. Number two, the hippocampus is a hugely integrative um, a circuit, so it connects widely separated memory systems to each other and it links them together. Number three, the prefrontal cortex behind the, your forehead, it's linking widely separated areas deep in the brainstem, limbic area, what's classically called the limbic area, and throughout the cortex. I'm going to bet a little more of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex to begin with. You know, with. it grows the dorsolateral, but if you include the anterior cingulate, and also parts of the medial prefrontal area, it sort of grows those too. I, um, I'm guessing it does the d- dorsolateral first, and then the, v- the ventral medial comes in. I'm going to bet. Yeah, I'll bet you're right, yeah. especially when it comes to starting with the first pillar, focus training yeah. would be more dorsolateral. Yeah, yeah. But the anterior sing- get cingulate gets in there too. So, okay. yeah, That's exactly. the compassion training. But keep going. So then there's that. Then the, the, then the fourth way we can study this is something called the connectome, which is just the word connect with the letters O-M-E at the end. And that's a new way for neuroscientists to talk about the more subtly differentiated areas, like, like for example, it's more like small towns and the little byways and small roads that connect them, whereas the corpus callosum is like the major 405 yeah. freeway, you know, connecting, well, if it was the 5, you know, connecting San Francisco to uh, L.A. Actually, I don't know if the 5 goes to San Francisco, but you know <laughs> what I mean. Last, major time, last, time, uh, last time I spoke to Antonio Damasio, he was working with that, I think it's a water-based system that shows the wiring, right? Yeah. That, yeah. Well, that, that's the connectome, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the these three-pillar trainings grow a more interconnected connectome. Now, what's fascinating about that, two, two things. Um, one, when the Human Connectome Project asked the question, is there a brain status, a correlate, a neural correlate with health? And they took every measure of health they could find, and the one brain factor that was associated with it, so we wouldn't jump to the conclusion that's causal, but at least it's the neural correlate is the way we say it, is how interconnected your connectome is. In other words, how the differentiated areas are linked, what we're going to call integration, is the best predictor of well-being. But that that's what integration is, is the connecting connectedness of the parts, right? Exactly. Yeah. So So that's kind of amazing. And what we just said basically was three-pillar training makes your connectome more interconnected. Yes. So that's Makes like awesome. Sense. And and the other thing that's kind of both sad and also I hope inspires some research is that when pe- when kids have been um experiencing developmental trauma, which means abuse and neglect, um you know, Marty Teicher, a colleague of mine uh, at McLean at Harvard, what Marty's shown is that if you had to summarize what abuse and neglect this developmental trauma does to the growing brain, it impairs integration. Yeah. How? The corpus callosum, the hippocampus, yeah. the prefrontal cortex, and the connectome is less interconnected. And so, then subjectively, patients will always say, I, I dealt with that. I don't think about that anymore. And yet that piece of disintegrated self is over there asking for attention <laughs> through, well, exactly. through, through repetition, and compulsion, and all and, kinds of stuff. And here's the amazing thing. You know, I, I'm revising my first textbook into its third edition. So I always say to the interns, show me that these statements are wrong. And they go, you mean right? I said, no, no, no. Show me one article that goes against any of these statements and then we'll really throw it away. We'll test it. We'll, let's, let's come up with something new. It'll be more fun. And they go, okay, whatever. So they try, they try, they try. Here's what they find and they can't find a single bit of evidence to go against this. Every form of regulation you can name depends on integration in the brain. Of course. Of course. 
Well, you, you that's great because you're so wise about this. So that means that, of course, developmental trauma leads to dysregulation of emotion, attention, mood, thought, interactions, you know. And so what we want to do is provide interventions that create more integration because that's what it all depends on. Yeah, the brain-body system has to regulate as a whole. Otherwise, there's a part left out, exactly. literally. And then that part is only regulated insofar as it's integrated with the rest. Totally. And that's where when you start talking about mind and why I use the word regulate your mind is because it's more than just the head brain. It's the body and it's your relationships. Yeah. Because when you can bring in relationships into your life that are supportive, I mean, think about AA, you know, you are really creating a more integrated life in your relational side of mind that supports the internal aspect of your life, developing integration too. They go hand in hand. There's a whole self-issue that sort of is implied, well, is, I guess, necessary to, I think, discuss in all this, which is as you integrate, your sense of self shifts too. And particularly as you integrate not just with yourself, but with other people, you sort of, what I always tell the recovering addicts, say, is you see yourself through a new pair of glasses. Totally. And those glasses give you both an expanded sense of who you are, and they give you a, a... more tranquil sense of who you are. I think that's right. I'm not sure tranquil is the word I would use, but as as you as the self. Well, what would you use? What, what word well, is just, good for you? It, complete is the first word that comes to mind, but but being mm-hmm. complete is also regulated, and regulated and complete implies sort of tranquil, sort of full. Yeah, right. well, that, yeah I jumped so, ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, complete and regulated. Yes. So, so that's the that's the the brain part. I, I think it's worth just mentioning five molecular mechanisms of health that the three pillar training produces that are just literally um, uh, revolutionary. That these scientists have established this, published in the most rigorous of peer reviewed journals. But in brief, here they are. When you do three pillar training, and again, the wheel has all three, but this comes from research when they're they're studied sort of as separate. Um, uh, mind training programs and then put together, here's what it creates. Number one, stress is reduced. You can see this in lowered cortisol levels, the stress hormone. So that's good. Number two, you actually see improvements in immune function. So that's pretty fantastic. Number three, inflammation, which we now know is a core of many diseases that can be dealt with in an effective way. It's reduced with three-pillar training. Why? Because we now learned you actually alter the epigenetic molecules, these non-DNA molecules that are sitting on top of the gene in the area that's responsible for controlling inflammation. It makes it so the regulation of that gene is going to reduce inflammation by epigenetic changes. And what's their primary change they're looking at, like CRPs or something? Well, well, you can see a change in, in C-reactive protein for sure, um, but and other markers as well. They okay. can even test the the um, the genes and see yes. these alterations in epigenetic regulators. I get so it's, it. It's remarkable. And the the two other uh, ways basically are we have reduced stress. We've got improved immune function. Uh, we have um, reduced inflammation. We have improved cardiovascular functioning so that you're actually lowering cholesterol, lowering blood, blood pressure, and making heart rate variability more coherent, which basically means you're balancing the accelerator and brakes of the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. So your heart is functioning in a better way. That's awesome. That's number four. And then number five, and this, you know, this like is amazing, but when you develop this thing called presence, which is basically what, you know, the aware book is all about is how do you develop this presence? You're basically dropping into the hub of the wheel and learning to live not always in the hub, but from the hub. When you learn to live with presence like this, you optimize an enzyme called telomerase, which oh, wow. is going to maintain and repair the ends of your chromosomes. Less aging. Less aging, exactly. In fact, when I sent the manuscript to uh, Alyssa Eppel, who with, um, the Nobel Prize winning Elizabeth Blackburn wrote a beautiful book called The Telomere Effect. Um, what Alyssa wrote to me when I sent her the manuscript, is she said, Dan, Dan, you know, uh, did you send the book to the printer yet? And I said, oh, my God, no, what's up? What, what did I write that was wrong? She mm-hmm. goes, no, everything is correct. 
She said, you just left something out. I said, oh, my God, I have to write another chapter. What did I leave out? She said, no, 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 you just need to write one thing. You need to write, it slows aging. <laughs> and well, this is like maybe. the world's expert in aging. <laughs> I said, how can I say that? She says, you have to say that. That's what we've shown. So it slows the aging process by keeping your caps on your chromosomes more intact so that your cells are healthier, live longer, you're healthier, you live longer. Unbelievable. And you you had said at the outset that in applying the wheel, you've seen several patterns emerge. I, I assume you're talking about clinical response. Is that what well, you mean? Well, that I saw with my patients. And, and I'd love to hear what the and, patterns of response are, if, if that's what you meant. I, I think I, I may have misunderstood what you said, but you said once when you apply the wheel, several patterns emerge. And I imagined yeah. you meant response patterns, clinical patterns in response well, the, to the wheel. Yeah, the first was what I mentioned earlier was, you know, reduction in anxiety, okay. uh, help with depression, mild to moderate degrees, um, and also uh, help with, with trauma. The patterns I think I was referring to, which we can get into, is, you know, since I did this in workshops where we would spend sometimes a whole day, sometimes three days, sometimes a week, um, where we would do the wheel over and over again, then people would take the microphone after doing the Wheel of Awareness practice, which is a, you know, you systematically go around it. You can do it from my website. Uh, we've had lots of people stream it from the website. You know, we just give it away for free. Um, but uh, in the workshops, of course, I'm there. And then people will take the microphone and share what they experienced. So when I said the patterns, this is not my, these are not my patients. These are citizens of the world yeah. of all sorts of backgrounds, you know, uh, every kind of educational background you can imagine, uh, nationality. I did it literally all over the planet. Um, and then just basically, because I'm a scientist too, you know, just recorded all the results and then saw patterns that came out. For example, um, when people do different parts of the wheel, the remarkably similar uh, responses, even though everyone, of course, is a unique person, they say it in their own way. They're talking, for example, in the first quadrant or segment of the rim, they talk about feeling the sounds in a much crisper way or seeing the sights. So doing one thing at a time really highlighted those. For the second segment, they felt parts of their body they didn't even know they had. You know, like I have them go through the esophagus, you know, during the yeah. digestive system. And they kind of, whoa, you know, I've got these parts of my body. And that's pretty interesting for them. When you, That's the focused attention part. When you get to the open awareness part, the pattern people describe that's really remarkable is even though they have a kind of bring it on attitude and say, I'm open to anything coming in, often very little comes and they do feel very tranquil and it's surprising. And a lot of times they use the word weird and strange when they've never had so much peacefulness in their life. Hmm. Um, so that's interesting. And then when we do the part where they bend the spoke around into the hub itself, Drew, you're not going to believe this. And when my students come with me repeatedly to independent workshops mm -hmm. and hear the same thing said from people who've never meditated before or people who run meditation centers, they come to me. They say, no one's going to believe you. I said, I'm recording this. I have the data. But here's what people say. And so this is what you need to picture. They've now gone through the first five senses. They've gone through the senses of the body. They've gone through exploring thoughts and feelings and memories and images and all that. And now they've bent the spoke around into the hub or retracted it to explore awareness of awareness. And this is what they say. Time disappeared. Oh, yeah. I can imagine that. Um, never felt so open before in my life. Yeah. I felt connected to everything. That's what this God. is what meditators experience too, right? Yeah. 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 Well, this hub is in every human being. Yeah. And they felt love. They felt this spaciousness. And, you know, when they then turn to the relational side to develop the kind intention, you know, it's this expansion of who they feel they are. And when people come out of even one session of a wheel of awareness thing, there's a shift in their sense of self in that they feel more at peace and more connected. They feel more clear in their um, way that they're walking around in their body and also more clear in how they connect with other people and communicate with them. 
And then when we do the wheel again, you know, if it's not just a, you know, an afternoon workshop or something, we get to do it many times. It gets deeper and deeper. And I got to tell you, I do this as my morning practice. And it is such a joy. Every day is different. But every day is a deeper exploration of just what it means to be present and aware. And uh, so that's what I mean by the patterns. And in the book, what I do is I talk about what is the hub? What is awareness? And? And how can we use the, the hypothesis that I present in the book for the first time in a really, really deep way? I'm using case examples of you know, pe- people I've worked with, but also going into the science of it. So we move beyond the brain science, which basically says awareness comes from integration in the brain. I mean, so does love. Love comes from integration in the brain. But what actually is being integrated? And then we get into a deep study, step by step, uh, of the, the science of energy. And it becomes really, really fascinating to, in a workshop, to walk slowly with people through their actual experiences doing the wheel, which in the book you do, and then to get into the science of energy and see how it correlates with their experience and expands their understanding of the difference between the hub and the rim. I remember you told me about this a couple of years ago that you were onto this. Now, yeah. the other thing I'm experiencing is I'm imagining that initially you need kind of a guide with this and you're that guide because I feel myself dropping into this stuff just as you describe it. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know what I'm saying? Well, if you're looking to buy a car, I know you've been inundated with uh, a bunch of confusing data and prices and names, list price, dealer price, MSRP. I, I still I don't know what that is. But it, you want the price. What what are you going to have to pay? And that's what you call the true price. Now, from True Car, you can know exactly what you're going to pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories, including fees and accessories, and you'll know it all before you get to the dealership. True Car dealers show you the true price on cars like the one you want, and you get it all from the comfort of your own home. That's right. You look at that scattergram. You see what others paid. You know it's a great price because True Car shows you what other people paid for the same car you want. And True Car certified dealers know this, so they set their true price competitively so they can win your business. It makes it easier. It makes it hassle-free. And you feel informed, and you feel like you have all the information you need. You know the true price. And don't forget, whether you're ready to buy new or used, it's not just new cars, it's also used cars from the True Car Certified Dealer Network. And remember, once you lock the price in, you're locking it in for a specific vehicle on that True Car Certified Dealer's lot, and you will enjoy a more confident car buying experience from True Car. Some features not available in all states. Hydrolite is the best rehydration product I have ever seen. I, for quite some time was planning to invent something like this. I just kept saying, "There's a, we should be able to put a fizzy tablet in a bottle of water and it would have enough solute, we call it, because water is not enough. You need, you need something in it, sort of a salt-like solution and electrolyte replacement. I think most people know that, but they don't know that most sports springs don't provide that and they do provide way more glucose than uh, hydrolyte. So what you need is hydrolyte to do it better than any of the sports drinks. In fact, hydrolyte is... In, in fact, Hydrolyte comes in great flavors, orange berry and lemonade. It's available on a pre-mixed drink or a powder. Of course, I like those effervescence tablets because that's what I imagined. And they're easier to cart around. And boy, you can get rehydrated right away. Just drop it in a glass of water. Compared to sports drinks, Hydrolyte delivers up to four times the electrolytes with 75% less sugars. You understand? That's that's the difference. Hydrolyte solutions are appropriate for all ages, and each bottle or package includes easy-to-follow dosing instructions. You can find Hydrolyte at Rite Aid or Hydrolyte.com slash Dr. Drew. Again, Hydrolyte.com slash D-R-D-R-E-W. And for a limited time, our listeners save 30% on Hydrolyte. Just click through the banner on my website. Use the code Dr. Drew 18 at checkout. That is D-R-D-R-E-W 18 at checkout. So either go to my website and use that code or go to Hydrolyte.com slash D-R-D-R-E-W and use the code D-R-D-R-E-W 18. Yeah. And and now let me – I'm going to ask you a question. This is sort of a clinical question. Is that when I was doing deeper work in psychotherapy, I would occasionally drop into what Alan Shore called trauma-associated dead spots. I don't know if you remember him referencing that, but I actually experienced that stuff. And that's different than these – this – 
what I was just experiencing listening to you, frankly, which was this yeah. sort of awareness spot. It was it was a dead spot. And it sort of filled in the process of psychotherapy where it just sort of went away. But how do you prevent people from dropping into that if they have a significant uh, trauma history? Yeah. So one of the people who you hear about um, in, in the beginning of the book, you hear about five people and you come back to them at the end. And so it, it's an invitation if someone's experienced trauma uh, to hear. Uh, I use the name Teresa for the person who had trauma. Um, so you read Teresa's story in the beginning of the book. And it gives you um, it gives you uh, basically um, some of the concerns of going through it without a therapist. Mm-hmm. If you are uh, someone who's experienced trauma, so that you might want to go see a therapist. I, I don't but, think I could have gotten into those spots without a, another human. They're too. Yeah. They're too. I don't know. Threatening, right? And I talk about that exactly. Yeah. They were too. I mean, you want to talk about it? What yeah. it was like? Oh uh, yeah, it was, it was. Time went away. But it, but also self kind of it was a little bit of a black hole. Not, mm-hmm. it, was not it was not an expansive experience. It was sort of a narrowing experience. And yeah. and having been in it helped me understand why it was so threatening to me because I you get you get you do disappear sort of into it. And with another loving presence with you, you come back out and you start doing that in and out a little bit. And all of a sudden, it's just like eh, that doesn't matter anymore. That's, that's not yeah. so threatening anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's it's so interesting you say that because in attachment terms, if you are um, not just you, but if, if yeah. one has the experience with an attachment figure where things don't go as they might of, of being connected, then the emptiness of that experience gets embedded, I think, in something called implicit memory, where it 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 feels like time disappears and it's endless because in implicit memory, you just have this kind of deep sense of being alone, disconnected, despairing. Right. It's, it's it, empty, it's hopeless. empty as opposed to full, which the awareness yeah. thing feels full. This feels empty. Right. So that's, that it's, it's in, like, it's like in, dropping into emptiness and I can understand why that would scare people. But once absolutely. you, once you gain some sort of mastery over it, it's like, Oh, well, you know. Right. And Teresa is an example when you see her case of someone who had those kinds of things. And interestingly, you know, when you see the science of energy, um, and I don't know how much you want to get into this, but Go the ahead. bottom line is the, the, the quality of the hub, which is open and spacious, um, seems like it correlates with this, what you can call a plane of possibility. This It's a place where all possible things rest before they become into form. It's like the formless source of all forms. Have you ever read? And in the book, he- have you ever read Heidegger? Heideggerian philosophy. I've read a little bit of Heidegger a while ago, and getting ready for uh, doing this thing for John O'Donohue this summer. But yeah, he, what brings- Heidegger has the you know the the horizons of these ecstatic horizons of possibility that are that are embedded in temporality, something. Bigger than temporality, so he calls it temporality Tate. Temporality Tate. So it's these weird sort of. There's this thing that's sort of potential, that's sort of horizon of these ecstatic moments that are outside of time. <laughs> that's sort of how well, he describes it. If you Drew, if you could send me where you read that, that would be so great to have that because here's here's what I, I want to literally got it from a, of a of a lecture given by a guy named Herb Hubert Herbert. Uh, He's a famous Heideggerian philosopher up at Berkeley, and he has a whole series on online. And he described, okay, as you describe, go on in the in the book two of Being in Time, he gets this sort of ineffable place of horizons and ecstasies, he calls them, and, and beyond, definitely not biological time, but not even really temporality. It's like temporality next domain, like next – you know, the next uh, quantum of temporality calls temporality. Right. Tate. right. So. Well, here's the, here's the amazing thing. Um, in, in Huber, July, Robert Hubert Dreyfus, the guy's name is Dreyfus that does those lectures. Dreyfus. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank Go, you. Go ahead. Dreyfus. I'll look him up. In July of 2018, the cover story of scientific American was when does the quantum realm become the classical realm? Yeah. And just so people know what that means is that large objects, you know, function based on what Isaac Newton figured out, these laws of gravity and force and things like that. 
And in this Newtonian world of large objects like your body, large molecules, um, we have something called an arrow of time. Like if you and I break an egg, we can't unbreak the egg. So there's a directionality of change called the arrow of time. So even if there isn't something separate, there is this directionality of change called the arrow of time. So I want people to really drill into what you said. He's not saying there is a sequence of time. There's a directionality that that change that time as we know it is really just a way of marking change, and that has exactly. di- and that has directionality. Exactly. Yeah. And that's called the arrow. Mm. And so here's the amazing thing: it's now been established. So what I'm about to say is not a hypothesis. And if you just read Scientific American, July 2018, the cover story, it's just a six-page article. You can read it. Here's what we know, but we don't understand. When you go from large object sizes down to very small sizes, like the size of an electron or a photon, that are called microstates, the laws that govern the collection of those microstates called macrostates, like your body, the Newtonian classical physics laws that have an arrow of time, those laws disappear. And the kinds of laws that we understand for microstates are called quantum laws. And quantum laws, and, and you can see this in, the, in all sorts of writings, and I put this in the Aware book, quantum laws can predict the nature of reality to the trillionth power. If we had so enough they, computing power. <laughs> yeah, they are absolutely real. In yeah. fact, they run a lot of our computers. Yeah. So it isn't that quantum laws are controversial. or They're just weird. Yeah. You know, and I had to put in the book, just because something's weird doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah, I did. To so, restate that, quantum laws don't follow rationality. You know, things not like... The, not the body rationality yeah, that you know about. They're more yeah, about probabilities, right? Yeah, yeah. So here's what I think happens. The hub, I believe, correlates with what physicists would call the quantum vacuum. It's the formless source of all form, mm. and it's arrow-free. So what Heidegger may have been talking about and these 10,000-person studies suggest is that when people bend the arrow around, uh, I'm sorry, the arrow, (laughs) when people bend the spoke around into the hub, they lose the arrow of time. They feel God, the generator of diversity. They feel love. They feel this incredible expansiveness. And they do feel this sense of being free of stuff that on the rim was bugging them, you know, whether it's depression or, you know, the... the, um, the emptiness of, of trauma or, uh, or neglect, these implicit memories are in the rim. And sometimes we even avoid the hub because the hub, if it's this plane of possibility, is actually, and I, I do this very, very slowly in the book, so excuse me if it just sounds too condensed here, but the plane of possibility where awareness arises from, I believe, is essentially filled with uncertainty. Whereas a thought like I'm no good or I'm, you know, I'm terrible, there's no hope, those at least are certain. Those are what we call peaks. As you drop down from these peaks, you can get stuck in a plateau which says I'm terrible, I'm no good, my mother didn't love me, all these things that you may not even be aware are limiting you. They're like filters of consciousness. But when you go beneath those filters into pure awareness, it's scary because it's uncertain. But here's the amazing thing. What uncertainty means, it's a synonym for freedom. Well, see, and I was choice. just going to say that I'm, I'm going to, though, it's put a different spin on it and say I think it unburdens us from the, well, it releases us from the burden of self, right? And self of, is a, of a limited self. Yeah. 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 And again, it, but it just brings this expansive awareness of awareness back to us. And uh, it's a way of, again, like we always tell people, be aware of something bigger than yourself. This is the ultimate way to do that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And you know, what's it's striking about this is um, with, after doing with, with so many people and, you know, publishing this book, when other people have written about, um, let's say, hallucinogen use or very similar, you know, right? Long time meditative practices. Yeah. It's basically word for word what people experience in the hub, but without the hangover. Yep. I, I, I've heard this language before. But, Dan, I obviously could talk to you all day. Now I have to get the book and I have to study it. It's aware of the science and practice of presence. Uh, I, it's, a, it's my 
It's my next project, my friend. I'm, I'm going to get deep. I'm going to go into this thing, and I want to study it. So well, I'm I, ready for you. I thank you for writing it, and uh, I can't wait to dig into it. And I, I'm hoping that I adopt the practice. Let's see how I'm, how good I am at that. Even if I do okay. two, if I do two minutes a day, I'll be pleased with myself. Exactly. But well, whether you do it or not, we're going to get together again soon. All right, my friend. It's great to talk to you. It's uh, again drdansegel.com if you want to see more. S i e g e l. Dr. Dan Siegel is the Twitter handle. And uh, always a, a more than a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Absolutely fabulous. All Thanks, right. Dr. Drew. Great to connect. We'll talk soon. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com.